Welcome to the Council for AFSCME Unplugged podcast. I'm Larry Dorman, and with me today are two state correctional officers. We're going to talk about the issues facing frontline prison employees and the impact of a forthcoming Supreme Court decision on prison employees and on uh, all public sector workers. So let's get right to it. Our guests are Ginny Leegee and Brian Larson. And let's start with you, Ginny, and tell us where you work, what you do, and how long you've been doing it. Sure. Good morning, Larry. Thank you so much for having us on today. I am a correctional officer for six and a half years and currently working at Cheshire Correctional Institution. And you're also a member of AFSCME Local 387's Executive Board? Correct. I'm the local secretary here. Great. And we also have with us Brian Larson. Brian, tell us a little bit about yourself. Good morning, Larry. Uh, Brian Larson, I've been a correction officer now uh, going on four years. Uh, I work at Manson Youth Institution, so we're part of the same Cheshire complex. Great. Um, uh, Brian, let me ask you first, um, what are the challenges of being a correctional officer for the state of Connecticut? And I, I know we are unions, we represent upwards of uh, 4,500, 4,800 prison employees around the state and proud to do so. And it's said that uh, correctional officers walk the most dangerous beat in Connecticut. So um, what are the challenges that you face kind of on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, you, you have to look at it as uh, collectively you have all your towns, your municipalities, your cities. So our prison, for instance, uh, the youth population being anywhere from 15 years old up to 21 years old, uh, essentially it's you know, the worst of the worst. You know, they're locked up for a reason. Um, so we have the challenges of um, you know, gang members, um, people that are in there for sexual assaults, violent assaults, home invasions, carjackings, uh, assault on police, fire, and uh, emergency staff. So when you put them all together in a small confined area, um, you know, the tensions run high, not only with, with the inmates, but also inmates and staff. Uh, Jenny, what are your reflections on the challenges of being a correctional officer? So on top of the physical challenges that Brian stated, which we have also at Cheshire, there's also the psychological stress that coincides with our job, the mandates, the long hours, the fatigue. Um, there's just so many component, components that are involved with the physical and mental aspects of how stressful our job is. Right. I, there's a reason this is technically and legally considered uh, hazardous duty employment and uh, don't want to be too morbid and, and, and sounding too depressive here, but actually correctional officers, at least from nationwide statistics, um, are, are prone to more uh, difficulties with uh, substance abuse, alcoholism, um, shorter lifespans, and again, not trying to um, dwell on that too much on, on the negative here, but uh, are, are both of you kind of aware of those sorts of challenges that face you beyond the prison walls? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you look at there's certain things that correctional officers are exposed to on a daily basis that the general public may see once, twice in the headlines on a month, maybe five times out of a year that would, you know, make them shudder, make them, you know, really gasp at what they're reading about. And for some of us, that's something that you see on a daily basis. Um, you know, you're, you're going to see self-mutilation. You're going to see attempts at suicide. Uh, you're going to see assaults on staff. In, in some cases, critical incidents where staff have been severely assaulted, possibly sexually assaulted, um, possibly exposed to, um, you know, 
uh, infected bodily fluids. So it does take its mental toll and, and to a degree, I think some people have, you know, officers have been exposed to that and it's almost forced them to, you know, numb the pain because they've become almost desensitized to it because it be, for us, that almost becomes the norm. Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. And, you know, the media does a very good job of, you know, letting us know when we do something wrong. Headlines are always, oh, prison guard, you know, did A, B, or C. Um, they're not there with us every day to walk the beat every day. The everyday stressors that we face, I mean, you're dealing with inmates. You're not dealing with the public. You're dealing with people that are already committed crimes, and it's not your typical 9-to-5 job. Not at all. No. And, um, and, and you mentioned just the fact that over time, um, because of short staffing, um, you and your coworkers uh, log a lot of overtime, and it's often not by choice. It's hardly ever by choice. The only choice you have is to pick your shifts that you want to work the overtime versus getting mandated into a shift that you don't want to work. It's, I mean, it's completely true. There's times, I mean, especially having a family, um, you have to pick the lesser of two evils mm -hmm. and work around it. So you may have an event on a Saturday that you have to be at, and that Friday, you know, you're putting in 16 hours, possibly first to second shift. And you know, you have to remember, you could be going from one block that is completely out of control or just a, a you know a very difficult block to the next block, which is just as difficult. You know, you could go from a, a, a segregation unit. RHU, restrictive housing unit, which is basically the worst of the worst with inside the prison. And then your next shift, you're rolling into a mental health unit, which is a completely different case of uh, inmates and, and the challenges that they give you. Right. And so let me ask you then, given the stresses, the challenges, uh, the difficulties of, of this public safety occupation that, uh, quite frankly, I appreciate that both of you and, and all the correctional officers do. Um, you, you deserve credit and, and you deserve a, a decent living for uh, making this decision. But clearly being a union member, I would hope and I would assume uh, makes a difference when you're doing the kind of job you do. You want to comment on that, Ginny? Absolutely. So the union has um, actually got us set up within our facilities to have the ability to sign up for overtime. Uh, without the union backing that, there'd be no sign up sheet, there'd be no, you know, way for overtime to be called in. So the union really set the precedence for us to get hired for overtime for those shifts that, you know, we wanted to avoid the In other the words, ladder. without the union, the employer would just say, Jenny or Brian, you're working tonight. I don't care what your, your schedule, your life says. Absolutely. Uh, how about you? What are some of the differences you've seen? I remember Brian talking with you because you, you know, you worked in the private sector too, and maybe you can reflect on that a little. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's for me personally, and then uh, I'm not just saying that it was like a breath of fresh air because I came from a retail environment. Uh, I was um, a manager, so there was a lot of times I was I was putting in well over a 40 hour work week, and um, the only time you the only thing you would get would be comp time, and many times with the comp time you'd have it scheduled as oh, okay, you put in you know 18 hours yesterday, um, so you know what Friday you can take half a day, and then Friday something would come up, and they'd be like, ah, sorry, we got to cancel that. So, um, I mean, for me coming in, just having the protection of the union saying, listen, there's, you know, you, you cannot work past this many hours. Um, the, the overtime has to be done fairly. Uh, the benefits alone, uh, I can tell you, you know, coming from a background where you're basically told, here's the health plan we've picked for you. Um, 
and you're you're lucky to have a job at this point. There will mm. be no raise. There will be no increase. There will be no cost of living. But again, you're lucky to have a job. Um, just looking at the contract, understanding it, and seeing how the union fought for it to protect what we have. Um, just since from day one, that's what motivated me to become part of it, not just as a member, but also as a representative. Excellent. And, and Jenny, I want to kind of circle back as we were talking about the dangers uh, of being a correctional officer. So I imagine union membership has also enabled you to, to have a safer workplace. Could you uh, comment on that? Sure. So anytime that there's an unsafe act or an unsafe environment, our union is very quick to address it with the administration. And the administration, because our union is so strong and it has been so strong for so many years, they take those requests seriously. And they usually get done in a decent amount of time if there's definitely safety. Safety is the number one concern for everyone. Mm -hmm. So I gotta ask you to look at the big picture and, and we're gonna talk about a, a case called Janus versus AFSCME Council 31 in Illinois. This is a case that the Supreme Court will be rendering a decision on any day now. It'll be uh, sometime between now and the end of June. And essentially it's a, what I call a right to work for less case. Um, uh, a decision in favor of the plaintiff, uh, an Illinois uh, state children's services worker will essentially make uh, public sector employment across the country right to work, meaning union members can opt out of paying dues, uh, yet the union would be uh, forced to represent all workers. And uh, we shouldn't be fooled. I don't even like to use the phrase right to work. Essentially, in right to work states, you see lower wages, lower benefits, lower levels of uh, the kind of safety protections and so on. But um, what are your thoughts about this case and, and, and its implications? Uh, and I'll start with you, Brian. Well, I mean, I've seen it firsthand. I mean, again, right to work, we always used to call it right to fire because essentially what it would come down to is uh, big corporations, which is what's backing this case, um, they worry about their bottom line. So you can have the best employee out there. And what would happen would be is if, I, if, I'm, if I'm the big box, I'm the big employer, and Ginny is working for us, but she's making, you know, let, let's just say on average, she's making $45,000. Um, she has a, a, a mediocre benefit package through us and a 401k, and um, it's time to make cuts. And the first thing to go is always the high, what they consider to be high salaries. So now you have somebody like Ginny who's already scraping by, providing for her family, and what they do is they come in and they would say, uh, listen, we have, to, uh, we have to let you go. There's no severance package. Uh, there's no payout on your vacation time, nothing, um, but we'll give you a, a, a nice review or a reference should you, should you find employment elsewhere. And uh, what happens next is now the management team is left to shambles because now they have to find a replacement for Ginny much cheaper. And, you know, if you really look at that, if that, if that should happen in the prisons, um, this is why you have the problems down south in some of those right-to-work states and privatized places because when you go from good quality members that care about what they're doing um, and that are doing above and beyond because of the benefits provided to them, once you eliminate those, uh, you really have a small pool to put, pick from. And it becomes like hiring at Walmart. You are, you're basically getting people in there at an hourly wage that are saying, well, hey, I could use a job. 
they're going to give me these uniforms. Yeah, I'll right. go do this for $9 an hour. That's an excellent uh, kind of frightening way to, to, to describe it, which is like the Walmartization of uh, the prison system. Uh, Jenny, how do you think the, the Janus case potentially threatens your livelihood and your future and those of your coworkers? Well, it's no... It's important to know that Janus is basically just an attack on unions, and that's how I view it. They're trying to take away everything that the local unions have worked so hard throughout the years for. Um, a weaker union will only be able to do less to protect their members. So all of the great benefits that we have that our unions have worked so hard for throughout the years are just going to be demolished. We could say goodbye to overtime. We could say goodbye to the way that we do our vacation, our swaps. There's just so many benefits that have been encompassed throughout the years, and we could just say goodbye to all of that. And, and Brian, you mentioned, um, and both of you have mentioned, and uh, I've seen you do um, talking to your, your members, uh, we have to emphasize that uh, Mark Janis is uh, an employee, a child and family services in Illinois. Uh, he is being backed by some really wealthy and powerful groups uh, to take this case. The case originally was a lawsuit that the governor of Illinois, a, a billionaire hedge fund trader named Bruce Rahner, um, brought against AFSCME. He hates unions. And um, he was ruled not to have any standing in the case because he was the governor of Illinois. He wasn't directly impacted. So they found Mark Janus. And we're talking about uh, the National Right to Work Foundation, uh, the Koch brothers. Um, there are a lot of nefarious forces, uh, but wealthy powerful forces behind this case, so nobody should be fooled. Uh, given that the decision's coming any day now, there, there, there's a positive side to this, and I wanted both of you to talk about what you, as as leaders of your AFSCME Local 387 union, are doing. And, and Jenny, why don't you kick that off? So we've been actively reaching out to all of our members to give them the most updated information regarding the outcome of this case. We've had training seminars here in the local. We visited the prisons to really educate each member to know what's going to happen if this case goes sour, which we we all agree that it probably will. We wanted to make sure that our members stay active in the union because that's what keeps our union strong. Without the members, without you know their union dues, if the union goes bankrupt, the union goes away. So at the end of the day, a stronger union means that we can really help our members succeed in their career and leave with a retirement. How about you, Brian? What's uh, what's been happening on your end when you talk to your your fellow workers at MYI? I mean, it's in youth and elsewhere. Well, um, I mean, not surprisingly, a lot of the members, I should say, pretty much all the members we spoke to, really got behind us on it because when you go into something with complete transparency and and really explain what's going on, this is what the lawsuit is. This is potentially what could happen. And the first question was like, well, what's going to happen to the union? And we said, well, you know, if, if you're opting in, you're going to be opting in. Um, it pretty much will be business as usual. We will still retain the right to represent strongly. And the question came up, you know, what happened? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe it was Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And, um, exactly. you know, a few people brought that up and they said, well, look at Wisconsin. They, you know, they were basically left high and dry. And they didn't get they 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 really ignored it up until the last minute when it was almost too late to respond, and um, you know not for nothing. But the one thing I've experienced with our union is you know our members are smart, they're well informed, they ask the right questions, and that's what's given us the ability to to stay strong with one another because it's open lines of communication. Um, 
the e-board members are all actively involved within their facilities. So again, complete transparency. Everybody knows what's going on at any given time, and we're all approachable. So I think that's really strengthened our um, our membership. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, it seems like both of you are, are saying that uh, you're prepared, you're ready, you're making sure people stay as members of the union, and you're going to keep fighting to represent the, the rights and the freedoms of, uh, of correctional workers throughout the state. Well, and the, and the other thing, too, there is, I mean, just off your comment there, we're not, the one thing I, I've brought to everybody is we're not making anyone stay a member. Exactly. We're basically saying, listen, this is, this is what you have right now. Okay, this is why you took this job. And as our president has said before, you didn't take this job to say you had a great state job. Okay, the, the, the state employs you. The union is what has negotiated right. the perks of the job. And if you, if you love the perks, if you love the benefits, um, if that's what motivates you to stay employed and watch your brothers and sisters on the line and stay safe and stay strong with each other, continue to be a union member. Exactly. It's better to be proactive than reactive, and I feel that this union did a really good job of being proactive regarding this case. That's right. actually the perfect word, proactive. Right. You're being proactive and making sure that, the, that your union will remain strong and be able to represent the, um, the interests of its membership, and that's a good thing. Absolutely. I want to thank you both, Brian Larson, Jenny Leegee, for speaking with us on Council for Unplugged. Uh, Brian and Jenny are members of Ask Me Local 387, along with Locals 1565 and 391. Those are the three unions representing frontline correctional employees. The uh, vast majority of our bargaining unit, of course, is correctional officers, but we also represent parole officers, maintenance staff, uh, counselors, and, and countless others who are really kind of the, you know, the hidden quiet heroes of uh, this public safety system of, of the prison system in Connecticut. So I'm um, proud of both of you. I want to thank you for talking about the Janus case. You, you're giving us certainly a great amount of optimism because you're ready to, to fight for what you believe in and what you know to be right. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Council for Unplugged, the podcast of our Council for AFSME Union. I'm Larry Dorman. Be sure to follow us online at council4.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, keyword Council 4. So until our next episode, stay union strong. Thanks a lot for listening.